Good morning, Cross Point. Thank you for braving the weather. I know it was very difficult. I know you were freezing. I know you were wet. It's ridiculous how much we talk about the weather at the slightest bit of weather. But for those of you who were always telling me I love the seasons, I miss the seasons, congratulations. This is a season right here, right now. It's called rain. And our roofs are so unaccustomed to us, some of us might go home to find out that we have leaks. And it's just a mess, folks. We're not, we're not built for this. We're not ready for this. And I know what a hardship it is, so I'm glad that you're here. And if you've joined us online, I'm glad that you have tuned in as well. Uh, my name is Bruce Garner. If we haven't met, I tried. I was roaming the parking lot in spite of that freezing rain. Uh, but if I didn't get a chance to meet you, welcome. Very glad that you're here. And we've done something that I've never done before in all my years of, of pastoring and opening the Bible with people. I've never taught about parenting this close to Christmas. This is where we ended up, and this is where this series ends. Beginning next Sunday, we turn our attention fully to the birth of Jesus. Next Sunday, I want to explain to you, in fact, something that many Christians don't have a very clear grasp of, I'm afraid, and that is why the birth of Jesus was necessary in the first place. The storyline, the characters we're familiar with, the significance of why, in God's mind, who was the only one who could effect it, it was necessary, might astound you, so I want to share it with you from several places across the Bible next week. Today, though, we're finishing a series on parenting, and I really appreciate the encouragement, the feedback that I've received, including from those of you who don't have children yourselves. It's wonderful to me that you would learn from it and benefit from it anyway, and then be kind enough to tell me so, to encourage me. Thank you. We've been talking about parenting kids in this rapidly changing and toxic culture that we've created in 2022 in the United States. I suggested to you that 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, offered a reminder, some guardrails and some goals for parenting. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And those three words, faith, hope, and love, I think are a simple way to remember how to parent your kids to follow Jesus. The, and I rarely make this assumption, the assumption this morning largely is that you're following Jesus yourself. If you're not, my sincere hope and my best wish for you is that you will and that you would start this morning. Because Jesus really was born of a virgin. He really did come down to earth to live among people. He himself gave life so that we could have eternal life after this life is over. That's the hope of the gospel. In the last two weeks, we've talked about faith and hope. Today, I want to talk to you about love, because all three are vital. These three, Paul says, abide, but the greatest of these is love. So if you'll open your Bibles with me, I want you to take you to the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. If you'll open your Bibles, please, in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, by way of very quick review, if you haven't been here, I told you in the first week that the greatest responsibility of a Christian parent is, first of all, to live the faith themselves, to teach it to their children, and when their children are attacked with doubts, 
to defend the faith to their children, primarily by listening to them in love first and understanding their doubts and not judging them, but understanding them so that a loving, truthful answer could be given regarding Jesus, the Bible, creation, the things that your child might be beginning to doubt. Last week, I talked to you about hope. One of the great goals of parenting is to teach your children to put their hope in God, not in circumstances. And one way that parents can aid that great outcome is to not continually rescue your kids. I tried to persuade you that raising your kids very rarely means rescuing your kids. That you may, in them very extreme circumstances, need to step in and rescue your children, but whether you call it helicopter parenting or it's even more aggressive cousin lawnmower parenting where you mow down all the obstacles that may come into your child's way, that that's a mistake and that what you need to do is raise them through adversity, teach them to expect it, teach them to face adversity by putting their trust in God. But Paul said the greatest of these is love, and that's certainly true. If you teach your children to put their faith in God and to put their hope in God, but you do not love them as you should, much of that will ring hollow. The greatest thing you can do for your children is love them the way God told you to do. Look with me in Matthew 22. Jesus was asked a question, and as so often happens, the person asking Jesus a question does not want information. He wants to create trouble in Jesus' life. Look in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, those are warring religious factions in Jesus' day, if you're not familiar. One group has failed, the other group's going to take their shot. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the greatest thing you can do for your children is for you to personally love God and for you to love them. That's the greatest thing. All the technique, all the money, all the coaching, all the counseling, much of effort and much of technique because in America we love technique and we love hacks. And everybody's looking for the right approach, the right phrase, the right thing, the right this, the right app to make our life a little bit easier. Much of that can be avoided. As helpful as it may be, a lot of that can be skipped if you will sincerely dedicate yourself to listen to Jesus tell you that in the Hebrew Bible, everything that had written up to that point in the Bible, up in his lifetime, it all hinged on two things. To love God supremely and to love the person beside you the way you love yourself. You set your heart to loving God with everything you are, everything God gave you. And then from your deep love for Him, turn to your child and love Him the way you love yourself. Your child's closer even than your neighbor, but if you will love your child even as much as you love yourself, you'll have done him a great deal of good. You've given him a great, lot of, a great deal of love. 
Because my pastor used to say, I'm not much, but I'm all I ever think about. (laughs) If you succeed in loving other people the way you love yourself, they're going to feel really, really, really loved. That's where, that's the foundation, that is the fountain of everything in your home is love. In a world of lies, the knowledge that your children are loved at home and loved in heaven will see them through many heartaches. Wherever your children are, however far from God they may be, however other people may misunderstand them and mistreat them, if they have the certain knowledge that you, their parent, love them with all of their heart and that you love them the way you sacrificially do because you understand that both you and they came from God and you have a great love for God and a great gratitude because God gave you these children and you love them because you first and most loved Him, they'll be secure. They'll be able to dry their tears. They'll be able to put the cruelty and the neglect of other people in perspective. Your love for your children will save them a world of heartache, and when life hurts inevitably, it will see them through that kind of pain. So now let me be very specific on what I mean. There's much more that could be said and probably should be, but let me give you three very specific ways that I think you can show practically your love to your children beginning today. You can start this this afternoon. You can start this right after church. First, encourage your kids much more than you think you need to. If gratitude and encouragement are sincere and true, they cannot be overdone. People never tire of being loved. Ever. I know that's true because the Bible says God is love and God is His love and the greatest thing that God gives to anyone is Himself. That's what Christmas is about. And when you someday are in glory and understand and truly for the first time fully, completely, not absolutely, not exhaustively because you'll never get over it and you'll never get enough of it, but when you understand who God is in glory... You're never going to get tired of being loved the way He loves you. You may get tired of your spouse's or your kid's quirks and jokes. Boy, do my kids get tired of my jokes. Let me tell you, I have fully embraced the dad joke culture, and it's just really, really, really burdensome okay, to my family. <laughs> they get tired of that, and I don't blame them. But of being loved of sincerely being loved by another, no one ever tires of that. And one expression of love is encouragement. If your marriage and your home and your parenting isn't characterized by encouragement and by grace, by genuine heartfelt praise and gratitude and encouragement of the other person, your home is falling short, as I'm going to show you, of the Christian standard. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to do a a bit of reading today in Ephesians 4, and I'm actually not going to explain some of it. I'm just going to let the Word of God wash over us at the end. But I do want to explain Ephesians chapter 4. I just want to show you how practical Paul's epistle is here. Here's the backdrop. The Ephesians, if you don't know, the Ephesians are an ancient city in modern-day Turkey, legendary for idolatry and sexual immorality. 
It's a wild place for anybody to believe in Jesus Christ. But these have. They're genuine Christians. They're learning to follow God. They are characterized by drunkenness in their city. So Paul tells them in this same chapter, hey, stop getting drunk with wine and start being controlled by the Holy Spirit instead. He's going to order their whole lives, their daily practices, things that should seem obvious in the home, in marriage, in parenting. He's going to name it all. And in Ephesians 4, just let me show you in greater context how clear and practical this is. Ephesians 4.28 Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The spirit and the ethic of Jesus always raise the bar. Everybody goes to work to provide for their own needs. That's obvious. Pagans do that. Paul says that the purpose of work is not only to provide for yourself, the purpose of work for the Christian is to have something to give away to other people's needs. He's that practical. In Ephesians 4.29, he gets down to the way we speak, which is what I want to show you. And as I read this, the first thing you should do with the Bible when it's being read, even before it's explained, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should be asking yourself, if these are instructions for Christians, how am I doing? Am I putting this into practice? Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may grace to those who hear. Let's work through this. Paul says, when you speak, you run the danger always of corrupting the other person, of something foul, something bitter, something toxic coming out of your mouth and staining them. At the risk of being too graphic, has anybody ever vomited on you? It's happened to me. It's wildly unpleasant. Happened to my wife on a date with another guy before she met me, and I'm really proud of that guy. (laughs) Because he kind of set the floor of what dating could be for her. So when I just showed up and didn't even cough, you know, it looked pretty amazing. Your speech can have a toxic, polluting effect on other people. You can discourage them. You can embitter them. You can exasperate them. Both Ephesians and Colossians, in speaking to parents, specifically fathers, says, do not provoke your children. Do not exasperate your children. Do not embitter them. That's always the danger for parents when we talk to our kids. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. The purpose of a Christian talking is to always leave the other person better and stronger than they were. That may include correction. That may include telling them that they're going the wrong way and showing them a better way, but that itself will be part of building them up as fits the occasion. In other words, Christian speech is not only, first, it does no harm, secondly, it builds the other person up, and it also has to be timely and appropriate. Have you ever said the right thing at the wrong time? Have you ever insisted in either marriage or parenting, maybe even in friendship, the other person says, can we please not talk about this right now? And you go, no, this has gone on long enough, and I have some things to say. Have you ever done that? If you notice I got into it, it's because I've done that. You're wrong. 
That's not loving the other person as yourself. If you were the one making that choice for yourself, you would gladly say for yourself, let's do this a little bit later. Let's do this when I'm not leaving for work. Let's do this when I'm not already exhausted. Let's do this when I'm not hungry and anxious. It has to be, Paul says, no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. And here's the capper, here's the Here's the peak, that it may give, what? Grace to those who hear. Grace is undeserved favor. Grace is the cornerstone of our faith. Grace is actually our message. That your sins, your frailty, your rebellion, your weakness, your corruption, your ignorance, your foolishness, your wickedness, your lying, your lusting, everything that's wrong with you and everything that you've ever done wrong is covered entirely at the expense of God Himself. That's the gift. That's Christmas. That's the resurrection we celebrate at Easter and every Sunday. That's grace. In other words, if you set your standard in marriage or parenting to speak to your child exactly as they deserve, you're not speaking to them as a Christian anymore. Christian speech aims to give grace to those who hear, to give undeserved favor, to give blessing that is not expected, that is too generous, that is too good for what they actually deserve. In other words, a Christian in conversation should, if he's paying attention to Jesus, be a reasonable portrait of Jesus himself who tells people the truth, who tells, as this same Bible tells us, when we speak the truth, we speak it in love. And we've entered a culture, and it, sometimes it bleeds over into parenting culture, that as long as it's true, it doesn't matter when or how it's said, and that's not true. Love always seeks the good of the other person. That's why Jesus said all of the Hebrew Scriptures hinged swung on two simple commandments, to love God supremely, to love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. Very specifically, Paul lays that down for beginning Christians in a dark culture far worse than ours. It boils down to the way we speak to our kids. So to be very specific, give praise, give true praise as lavishly as possible and get into whatever they're into. Here's what I mean by that. If your kid's a terrible basketball player and you go watch him play basketball, don't tell him he's a great basketball player. He knows better. That's condescension. Tell him you love the way he battled it out. Tell him you love the effort. If you didn't see much of an effort, tell him that, at that you're glad he's trying something new. Make your praise generous, but make it truthful. Flattery is actually sinful. Flattery actually hurts people. Just as an aside, I've never met anybody who flattered me who didn't eventually hurt me. Flattery is the other side of the coin of actual betrayal and shenanigans. Never indulge your children with something that isn't true but find something to praise in every circumstance and give that praise as lavishly as you possibly can. Always truthful, but generous, gracious, encouraging, and get into whatever they're into. What does that mean? Please, please, 
understand that your child was made specially by God, in God's image, loved by Jesus, with Jesus sent to die for your child's sins too. That means that they're a whole other person. They have a whole other world of dreams and possibilities and purpose that might overlap a little bit with yours, but is very much their own. And your job as a parent is to help them explore it and to cheer every good, virtuous use they give of it. So that means if your kid wants to get into photography, guess what? You should be buying cameras. If your kid wants to be an athlete, then you who didn't play a sport and have no interest in it, you should be reading up on the sport and trying to learn something about it so that you can enjoy it with them. I have two very different sons. They're both wonderful in their own way, but boy, boy, are they different. I can't do a single thing that either one of them is now doing for their career. I understand one thing one son does a whole lot better than the second one. My second son is a semester away from being a biomedical engineer, and I don't, after three and a half years, I'm not entirely sure what that means, biomedical engineer. (laughs) He's working on a big project, and I asked him to explain it to me, and he got a little... I think he got a little tired of it before we were through because I kept asking him to simplify the language and I'm pretty sure he couldn't anymore. I actually said, explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old. Imagine a five-year-old or an eight-year-old sitting here in front of you, talk to me like I'm in third grade. And I still couldn't exactly tell you what it's about. But I care. I'm reading about that field. I'm reading about what each of them are into, not because I'm going to do it, Not because it's endlessly fascinating to me, because they're into it. Greatest lesson I received on this, and this is true of a few areas of life, was taught to me by my father-in-law, Cecil Maxey. Now, if you know my father-in-law, Cecil is in every respect a man's man. He flew helicopters, he boxed, he literally grew up hunting for food in Texas to feed his family when he was still a child. Okay, An all-American boy. Now an all-American grandpa, which is why I was so surprised when we went on a family vacation when I was first married to his youngest and best daughter. I married the third, <laughs> so they got some of, the, some of the inevitable design flaws out of the first two, and the third model was perfect. <laughs> but I'm along with model number one and model number two, and my wife and my two brothers-in-law, and we go all the way up the West Coast. And everywhere we stop, Cecil is choosing to go into outlet malls with his daughters. And it's the wildest thing I've ever seen, because this is a tough Texan, and he's in there holding dresses up and looking at sparkly things and talking about the shopkeeper. If we buy two, can you take half off the third? It's like, what do you think this is? A bazaar somewhere in some dusty village? This is an outlet mall. It's all computerized. You can't bargain, but he's into it, man. And I can't understand it. I'm exhausted. I'm mostly sitting in the food court with my brothers-in-law, bitterly waiting for it to be over. Before this is done, I feel more like running into traffic than I feel like going into one more jewelry or dress store. And it was so striking, the difference between us, that I finally asked him, hey, Rev, how are you doing this? Like, I'm just dying every time we stop, and you're, I know what kind of man you are. How is it that you're this into it? Here's the answer. Here's why I've told you the story. 
He said, well, Bruce, his tech characteristics low Texas way, well, Bruce, I don't really care much for any of this, but God gave me three daughters, and they do, and I love them. So I decided a long time ago to do the things that they enjoy so that I could be with them. I felt about that tall. Because <laughs> I'm married to the guy's wife and I'm making a big deal that I have to be even a witness of these things. That's love. That's getting into whatever they're into. Don't turn your children, please, into your version of what you think you should have been. Let them discover who God made them to be and go with them and enjoy them because in your companionship, in your financial support, in your joy when they succeed and when, in your heartbreak when they don't, they'll feel loved. Secondly, set boundaries as we talked about in the last two weeks. Set boundaries as discussed earlier in those notes. Boundaries are vitally necessary. They are all through God's creation. I don't know if you thought of it that way, but once you start reading the Bible and just thinking about life as God intended it and made it clearly to be, you'll see that boundaries are everywhere. Our own bodies. We are separate persons. God chose to make human beings in separate bodies. My body goes this far, no further. The ocean has a limit and has a boundary. When the ocean transgresses its own boundary, a disaster results. We call that a tsunami. We've experienced those here. They're a disaster. All through God's life, there are, all of life that God made, there, there are boundaries set into place. So please set boundaries for them. And please understand that boundaries are far more loving for your children than swooping in to fix it for them. That young child that keeps pushing the boundary, he's testing your sincerity. He's testing your courage. He's asking in action, how far can I go? And every person in the world wants structure and boundaries. May we may want them in different ways and in different places, but we were made to live within order, not unpredictable chaos. That's why God made us persons. That's why he made this well-ordered, well-designed, intricately put-together world. When you raise a child with the understanding through experience that there are no boundaries and there are no rules, and as long as I push, I will always be expanding the boundaries of what's life and what is permissible, you'll make them fearful. You'll make them bitter You'll make them rebellious. You won't stifle them at all if you lovingly put the boundaries in the right place. A wise grandma talked to me after the first service and gave me a very good application that I'd like to share with you now. In her long experience of raising kids and helping raise grandkids and discipling other women, she made a very good point. Wherever you put the boundaries, children, as part of their developmental process, shot through with sin and selfishness, same as you, they're going to push that boundary. And if you move it, move it back two feet, guess what they're going to do with the new boundary? They're going to push that one too. You have to make a courageous daily decision to invest in setting a loving but strict boundary rooted in God's Word for your children that in as many boundaries as their life experience requires and allows 
And I can tell you, it is many parents are not willing to set those boundaries and enforce them because it takes courage. You have to be willing for your child not to like you very much at that moment. The Bible clearly says in the book of Hebrews that no discipline seems pleasant at the moment. But afterward, it yields a beautiful harvest of peace. That's what you want. As I told you in Proverbs a couple weeks ago, the goal of parenting is to someday be able to enjoy your children. And the daily maintenance of those boundaries in that moment isn't pleasant on either side. The parent doesn't enjoy it, the child doesn't enjoy it. But if the boundary is right and true and godly and loving, it will rescue that child and you won't have to rescue them because the boundaries you've set in place have already kept them safe, have already rescued from the disaster that would have occurred if you would have said, I'm tired of fighting, you do whatever you want. Because life is the, as the way God ordered it, boundaries will eventually be enforced upon you and your child. It might be a credit card company. It might be a teacher. It might be a boss. It might be a police officer. It might be a judge. Boundaries always come. That is the danger of helicopter and lawnmower parenting, a day will come when you will not be able to persuade that credit card company to stop sending your beloved darling child a bill. MasterCard's always going to send the bill. The boss is always go going to insist that work be done the way the boss wants it done. The officer is always going to insist that the law be kept. You're preparing your child to leave your loving home to go out into a risky world where no one will love him the way you have. To be able to distinguish real love, which you gave him at home, from the fake manipulative, I want something from you, fake love that the world and the culture and his job and the cop and whoever else may know may offer him in its place. Love really is the solution. And number three, and perhaps most importantly and most convictingly. If you are married, love and respect your spouse with all the grace that God gives you. Because a loving marriage teaches love to, love to kids faster than anything else on earth. Turn the page with me to Ephesians 5, please. This is the section of the Bible that I just want to read over you. I think sometimes we who teach the Bible overestimate our own role in explaining it. I'm just going to read this with you. Ephesians chapter 5, just listen. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, ask yourself sincerely, humbly before Him, not me, how you measure up. Ephesians 5 verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now he's going to get specific to the home. 
of what that mutual love and submission looks like. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it might go well with you, that you might live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's the Christian home. Many men will say that they will die for their wives. For all of us, Lord willing, that will never be necessary. But it sounds romantic. Sounds bold. Sounds gutsy. You know what's much harder probably? I don't know because I've never faced that. But you know what I would imagine is much harder than summoning up a moment of courage to die for your wife? To daily die to yourself and live for her instead? care for her as if she were your her as if she were your own body to nourish and care for her to understand that is if i could paraphrase paul if she doesn't win you lose and to make that your worship to jesus wives in the same way out of love and respect for jesus to act respectful toward husbands that are in that moment not acting very respectable To give him respect that he has not in that moment seemed to deserve, not because he doesn't deserve it, but because Christ always deserves your trust and obedience. When that kind of love permeates a home and knits a man and a woman together, that foundation and that fountain that flows out to those children gives them security and gives them blessing that nothing in this world will ever compare to. So if you're married, love and respect your spouse with all the grace that God gives you. That's going to teach your kids more than any number of things you could do for them. If you're not married, lean on godly families in the church who can include you and your kids in their life. I won't name them, but some of the best and strongest men in this church did not have a father growing up. But they started attending this church when they were young boys. 
And godly men, seeing the need, seeing the gap in that young boy's life, stepped in and in a perfectly appropriate and respectful way, showed them what a godly man, what a good father, what a good worker, what a generous, self-sacrificial, courageous in Christ man looks like, and it's made all the difference. When we say that this church is a family, that's not a slogan. That's what we should be, and that's what we are. A spiritual family to interdependently give to one another what life may have taken from us. What the woundedness of our own parents and grandparents may have deprived us of. I'm inviting you to look past the wounds of the past and to write a new legacy for your family. You can make your story change if you simply begin to put into practice faith, hope, and love in your home for the sake of your kids. True love is caught more than taught. That's why we need each other. That's why we've spent this time together in God's Word. And I'm going to tell you sincerely, if you are a Christian, and that's a big assumption, and again, if you're not, my sincere hope for you is that you will see the reality of your sin and the greater reality of the Savior Jesus, and you would turn away from sin and turn to Him and ask you to save you. But if you're a Christian, you can do this. You don't need greater motivation. You don't need greater knowledge. You have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. Paul told pagans who were accustomed to sexual immorality and drunkenness as part of their religious experience, Stop being controlled by alcohol. Start being controlled by the Holy Spirit. He's already yours. Be filled with the Spirit. Jesus loves you. Order your work life. Order your home. He's giving them simple imperatives without much practical instruction. And the obvious assumption from Paul is you can do everything I'm telling you. The greatest tragedy that people ever have from the Bible is Christians will sit before the Word of God, hear what God has plainly said, and walk away with this impression. Sounds like a good idea, but I could never do it. Well, you may be right. You could never do it, but Christ in you absolutely can. Jesus said, He's the true vine and you're the branches. In other words, His life is already in you through the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So have the bold humility to say, Jesus, you know what my past is like, you know what my home and my marriage are like, you know the mess my kids are in, but I'm showing up and signing up. I'm going to try to live the faith and teach it to my kids. I'm going to try to put my hope in God and teach my kids to do the same. And give me the grace, Jesus, to love them the same way you love me. Help me love my kids one day at a time so that I can be proud of them, so that they'll be better Christians than I've been. If you've heard any bit of guilt and shame in any part of this series, that was either a mistake on my part or a misreading on yours because it's not my intention and it's not part of God's toolkit to use guilt and shame to move you down the road. It is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance, the Bible says. So if you're feeling a need for change and you have some practical things that you want into practice, that's a gift of God to you. Get started. Don't wait for the world to set the agenda. The reason secular authors like Jordan Peterson and Jocko Willink, as, as valuable as they may be in some of their writings and in some of their teaching, are so popular with young people, particularly young men, is because they at least have moral clarity. When they're right, they're only telling you what the Bible has always said and said better. 
You can actually build walls around your children to protect them from the toxicity of this culture. You can give them genuine love so that they don't fall for imposters when they leave your home. You can model day by day with frequent forgiveness and frequent confession on your part that you've done less than you know and you've done less than you taught and you've done less than God expects. That's the kind of graceful humility they need to see in your home that will teach them sometimes and in some ways more than your perfect obedience might if it were possible so that they themselves will learn how to confess sin and you can raise children that are better than you can imagine that are better disciples of Jesus than you have dared to be yourself. That's the goal. That's the purpose of this series. That's my sincere hope and prayer for you. Let's pray together.